This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Trump says we ought to close that internet thing. Donald, you know, is great at, at the uh, one-liners, but he's a chaos candidate. Endless debates about how many angels on the head of a pin from people who've never had to make a consequential decision. Donald, uh, you're not going to be able to insult your way to the presidency. It's actually merciful if you go ahead and finish the job rather than death by a thousand pricks. So you are okay with the deaths of thousands of innocent children and civilians. It's, it's like, you got it. So when you ask yourself, whoever you are, that think you're going to support Donald Trump, think, do you believe in the Constitution? They can kill us, but we can't kill them. That's what you're saying. If you want something talked about, ask a man. If you want something done, ask a woman. Well, I think if you're in favor of World War III, you have your candidate. Good morning. Well, there were some clips from the latest Republican presidential nomination debate that CNN hosted this week. We're going to try and catch up with the great entertainers who are competing for the Republican nomination in studio this morning. Harry Brown is a lecturer in journalism in DIT. Terry Prone is a communications consultant. Liam Kennedy is director of the Clinton Institute at UCD. And Karen Devine is a lecturer in international relations at DCU. But first, we're going to go to Simon Carswell, the American correspondent for the Irish Times. Good morning, Simon. How are you, sir? How important are these debates, Simon? Well, they're very important in the sense that they they allow the candidates to pitch out their ideas. I mean, the big difficulty is in the Republican races, there's just so many candidates. I mean, the field has already been narrowed somewhat from 16 to 13, but that's still a lot of candidates. And it's also such a big field that they have to split the candidates up into two debates. There's the undercard debate, or what's more colloquially known as the happy hour debate with four candidates, and then there was the main debate with the remaining nine. And this is huge, uh, drawing huge ratings, drawing huge interest. Uh, 60 million tuned in to watch the the last debate, uh, and um, almost as many as watched the the first two debates. So this is something that Americans are watching very, very closely. Now, and did the debate this week change anything? I don't think so. I think it was the one debate of the five that we've seen so far where there were no clear winners. Um, I'll go as far as to say maybe there weren't clear losers, although Ben Carson, the retired neurosurgeon, didn't do himself any favours. He showed himself to be out of his depth and out of place, particularly because this debate was looking at issues of terrorism and national security, which have jumped to being the most important issues for Americans in the aftermath of the San Bernardino attacks and also the Paris attacks. Um, I thought Marco Rubio, again, showed himself to be a skilled debater, although he got really stuck in the weeds with uh, Texas Senator Ted Cruz and the row over mass surveillance, which is a huge issue given the um, changes to the National Security Agency and their oversight of American phone records, and also on immigration. Um, So Cruz and Rubio are really fighting at the moment for the conservative vote. If you can imagine, the Republican Party split up into various lanes. There's the establishment lane, there's the conservative lane, there's the evangelicals lane. And I think Donald Trump is in a a lane all of his own, uh, which the others are trying to to get into as well. Although the anticipated uh, face-off between Ted Cruz and Donald Trump, they've had something of a bromance 
in the race so far. That failed to materialize, and many have thought that that Cruz would go for Trump or Trump would try and defend himself against Cruz in this debate because we've seen Ted Cruz's uh, ratings increase substantially in the aftermath of the attacks uh, and along with, because he is making uh, the same kind of proposals that Donald Trump is making to um, to keep Muslims out of America, particularly from country the the the, the political hotspots and the trouble spots at the moment in Iraq and Syria. So I don't think there's any clear winners in the debate this week. Okay, and then finally, what about Jeb Bush? I mean, there seems to have been a sense, you know, that he did better than he has done previously. But was it good enough to get him out of that bottom tier that he appears to be stood in? Yeah, he's really um, languishing in the race at the moment. He's quite far back. I mean, this is the man who is the presumptive nominee for the Republican Party. His poll figures are, he's at 4% compared to Trump's 33% nationally, and he's in fifth place. I'm not sure whether it would be enough to, to, to get him back into the race. It's too little too late. He made a calculated error uh, in going after Marco Rubio in one of the previous debates, and that backfired badly. Rubio was well able uh, to uh, to resist his attacks and, and to really put him in his place. This time around, he went for Trump, and I think he actually fared quite well against Trump, portraying him as a chaos candidate. And I think when Donald Trump starts complaining, uh, seeking an apology and complaining that the rules aren't fair or the questions aren't fair, then it really shows that uh, the attack had uh, was a direct hit. And I think Bush got uh, a lot of praise for that, but I think it's too late. I think he's too far back in the race for him to get back in and to challenge the top four candidates, who at the moment are Trump, Cruz, Rubio and Carson. God, it's amazing. It really is. Simon, thanks a million for that. And we'll catch up with you probably after the next debate and see if there are any dropouts or changes. Thank you. Um, Terry Prone, I just got to watch clips of the debate, but there was one moment when Donald Trump looked straight into the camera and said, I will do everything in my power to beat Hillary Clinton. And I believed him. (laughs) You know, you can see the attraction, can't you? The attraction in his determination, in his bullying, in his capacity to attack, to insult, um, he is tapping into a level of disappointed yearning for action, um, it seems to me. Um, I'm not sure that uh, there is anything that justifies the faith that some Republicans are putting in him, that they, they say simply, this is a guy who can do things. Well, evidence for that in political terms is actually quite thin. Um, Liam Kennedy, when you see this lineup of candidates like mm. Trump, like Cruz, um, like Mick Huckabee is still mm. in there. Yeah. And Simon was talking about the different uh, paths, the evangelical and the Christian. They're all really conservative, like really, mm. really conservative. What happened to the Republican Party? Are there good Republicans left? That's a loaded question to suggest <laughs> Sorry. that conservative and goodness are on opposite sides. I mean, oh, that's not even a question well you could raise on an American radio show. <laughs> You'd certainly get phone-ins. Um, I know exactly where you're coming from. Look, there's a long history lesson there, and I won't go into that, but really in the wake of the 1960s, uh, the Republican Party started to reinvent itself. It looked to the South, for example. The Democrats began to lose the South in the wake of the Civil Rights Movement. Um, it not only looked to the South, it looked to other constituencies. Um, Reagan was very smart in reaching out and picking up Republican voters from uh, white Democrats, especially white males in the 1980s. 
Um, and so there was a kind of ballast there in a core which was establishment but was beginning to flirt with the margins and especially evangelicals coming through the 1970s and into the 1980s. So by the time you get through to the present day, the Republican core is still there but it's, it's dwindling and the establishment core is still there but it's dwindling. And in order to survive demographically, the Republicans have had to reach out and work with um, constituencies who are much further to the right than the establishment core, not just conservatives, but evangelicals. And of course, then we have the Tea Party. Um, and what happens is that uh, the party has been stretched to the point where it's only barely keeping itself going. And what you see is that coming alive in the drama uh, uh, around Trump and around Cruz uh, and coming into the primaries and the caucuses, you know, starting in January and running through to June. I think this drama is going to continue. I mean, the Republican establishment do not want Trump elected, but actually they don't like Cruz much either. And Cruz at the moment is flying under Trump's radar. Cruz is really playing it pretty smart. Um, the establishment want Rubio, essentially. They used to want Bush. They don't think he's electable anymore. So now they're focused on Rubio. But can they get him over the line? I'm not sure. So just one more further example of their insecurity, because really this is all about insecurity at all <laughs> levels. Uh, the Washington Post reported last week um, that the, um, the GOP, the Grand Old Party, sat down with some of its uh, richest donors. And these donors made it clear that if Donald Trump was out in front, come the convention in July, they would have a fight on the floor to make sure that he doesn't go forward as president. Now, if that happens, that would be very ugly indeed. And how would that work? I mean, if he <laughs> gets the votes, well, how would they stop him? Well, if he gets the votes, really, he shouldn't be able to. But there's all kinds of things I think could happen on the day. The last time there was a fight on the floor was in 1976, uh, when Gerald Ford narrowly beat Ronald Reagan in the first ballot. And that was pretty messy then. But this could be even more spectacularly messy for the Republicans. Personally, I think Trump will implode before then. But even if he implodes, they have the issue of, well, what do we do with him when he walks away? We don't want him to form a third party run. And if he stays around, we probably have him to give him a slot at the convention. He could say anything. So whatever way you turn Trump around, he's a huge headache for the Republicans. And Harry Brown, you see, people keep saying he must implode. This can't go on. And yet it is going on. Why is he still getting people to vote for him? Well, no one has voted for him yet. Let's remember that. We just have people telling pollsters that they support him. And I think that there is, a, you know, many a slip in that particular uh, equation. I think that we, we still have to see whether those people who say they support Trump when they're polled are going to turn out in primaries and caucuses to actually support him. I, you know, I, I think they may. I'm not saying that there's necessarily not going to happen. But to some extent, saying you support Trump sounds right now like the most radical anti-establishment uh, thing that you can do, certainly from the perspective of a certain kind of uh, white Republican voter. Uh, it's a, it's a dissatisfaction with Congress and, you know, all the rest of the candidates pretty much were, well, other than Carson, who's also very successful in Carly Fiorina, but the rest of the candidates are drawn from the sort of the, the beltway, the congressional way of life. So in a sense, Trump is a, is a protest pre-vote, the support for Trump at the moment. It may translate into real votes when the time comes, but I don't think it's quite fair to say that he he necessarily hasn't, won't implode just because people still say they support him in polls. Now, he has said a lot of outrageous things and everyone says, is this the one? Is this the one? I don't think there's going to be a one. I think there is going to, I tend to agree with Liam that there's going to be, he's going to lose support as you get closer to the convention. The Republicans will stack the convention with superdelegates who have a potential to uh, to shut him out. And I think that we'll see his support dwindle away in a, in a real 
when the real fight comes. Remember, is, it's still only December. I mean, we're, we're still months away from the big primaries. That idea of a pre-vote radical establishment view, is that what's happening in Europe as well? With, say, the Front National, where it looked like they were going to get control of certain regions, and then people balked at the last minute, might it even happen here in Ireland, where the independents and the left seem to be doing well in polls, but maybe people will balk when it comes to actually voting? I, I, I obviously wouldn't put the independents and left uh, parties here in the same category as the Front National and, and, uh, and Trump. But I, I think that there is a strong similarity, both in sort of in class terms and relation to migration, etc., between Trump and the likes of the Front National and the other kind of right-wing populist parties in Europe. And I think that the support that they've got, which in countries seems to be kind of varying between about 10, 20, 25 percent, I think is also just about Trump's sort of maximum likely level of support, which will be enough to get him a lot of delegates in Republican primaries, but I don't think it would be enough to get him elected president. So, Karen Devine, what are people angry about in America that these candidates that to us seem irrational are attracting a lot of popularity? There's a, a background to this, and it's happened since Bush and Obama because the U.S. electorate now is more polarised than it ever has been. So in, say, 2000, 60% of Republicans define themselves as conservative now. It's over 68%. In 2000, about 28% of Democrats said that they were liberal. Now it's 38%. And since 1939, we have the biggest cohort of individuals who identify as independents, who reject both of the main parties. And you'll, there's 38% in 2012 who identified themselves as independents. And I think that's where the middle ground has to be fought. And that's where whatever candidate wins will have to appeal to that voter. And that voter identifies more as a moderate, like 43% of independents identify as moderates. So that's the background to what's going on. And I think where the anger lies, and I saw this myself when I lived in the US from 2012 to 2013, the anger lies in this idea that Government, Washington, Capitol Hill has not served the needs of ordinary people. It's seen as serving the needs of big business. Obama used to is talk that, about the is 1%. Is that true? Um, well, Obama, in his 2012 election campaign, kept talking about the 1% and about trying to regulate Wall Street. Um, now you have people like Donald Trump, who most of his op opponents are trying to classify him as in with big business. And that's easy to do, given that he is an entrepreneur and a businessman. But he's arguing that he's going to go against that and he's going to speak for the for the, I suppose, the average man in the street. And I think that Ted Cruz is also saying the same thing. He's an interesting candidate because his wife works for Goldman Sachs and he's like a Princeton graduate, went to Harvard Law School, clerk for two Supreme Court justices. He's very conservative. He's evangelical, born-again Christian. He doesn't identify with the Latino vote. And he's saying, he's trying to appeal to mainstream white Republican voters. He's saying, I'm going to break the lock of big business on Wall Street. And he's saying they do have deals. Um, and it's against a background of the fact that Goldman Sachs got 10, a $10 billion bailout after the financial crisis in 2008. But it was a loan with interest and they actually paid it back within a year. But he's arguing... and. And this is a theme you'll see, is that where Trump is 
really gaining ground and he's now at 41%. And, you know, I've seen it in the polls because in September he was around 32%. And before then, in the summer, he was really only around sort of 15%. So you've seen his growth in the polls. And what he keeps doing is speaking like the ordinary person, saying the things that the ordinary person would think themselves. And that's why he's talking about building a wall to keep out Mexicans. He's trying to stop Muslims from entering the country. So Terry Prone, this is where perhaps you can lend us your special insight. Um, that people are just so sick of politicians who are seem to be saying what they think might go down well or afraid not to offend anybody. And you've got somebody like Trump who comes out and says things, even if you disagree with him, it's so refreshing that he actually appears to be saying what he thinks. Why is this so rare in politics? Well, it's rare in politics because of the growth of the focus group. And the focus group tends to not just homogenize stuff, but it also tends to reduce a man or woman to their lowest common denominator, to the safe place. So that you, I, I absolutely fight focus groups all of the time. If you give me a politician who has a set of beliefs that they're passionate about and who can be helped to select out of the mass of what they believe ways of expressing the key themes that people stop and go, oh, I get that, gosh, and and repeat it to somebody else. Then you have a great politician. I remember you saying once on this show before that um, politicians used to come to you and say, look, this is what I really believe. How can you help me say it? And now they're coming to you and saying, what should I say? Uh, Or even in extreme cases, what should I believe? Because there isn't an underlying, a core set of beliefs, a set of passions. There is just the desire to be elected and to find out the safest way. What are the words I should use? What are the clothes that I should wear? Rather than tell me to be the best of myself and the best of my party in a way that enthralls and excites and interests people. And the thing about Trump is that he is the best and the worst of that. He is so clearly not a product of a focus group. He is a bully. He is uh, confident. He is insulting. But he also says things that are in many ways outrageous, but they are interesting, understandable and memorable. And those are the three key traits of great political communication. And are those the three traits that Jeb Bush is missing? Jeb Bush had much of that. I think that the presence of Donald Trump almost put Jeb Bush off his stroke because Jeb Bush had a fine reputation. He had governed well. He was regarded as immeasurably more intelligent than his brother and possibly than his brother and his father put together. Um, I think the Donald Trump factor astonished people and it has taken the focus of even quite legitimate queries in relation to other candidates like Ben Carson um, was proven to have effectively fabricated considerable chunks of his autobiography but that kind of came as a headline one day and then disappeared because Trump it is somebody once said to me that you watch a Donald Trump the way you watch a snake you're slightly fascinated, slightly terrified, and also intrigued. Mm. Um, Liam Kennedy, Maureen Dowd made a great point in the New York Times 
just about the whole process. She said, after covering nine presidential races, I have concluded that it is really hard to know who you're electing. You can have a candidate like W, after sincerely telling us he will have a humble foreign policy, proceed to stumble jejunely into decades-long wars in the Middle East. You can have a charming newcomer like Barack Obama, ascending like a political pegasus who loses altitude because it turns out he disdains politics. It's always a pig and a poke, so why not a pig who pokes? She's talking about Trump there. I mean, it's a point made that despite this bizarre process where there's so much exposure, mm. you still never know what they're going to do, do you? Well, I'm not sure this is exactly true. I mean, this is um, this is Maureen. This is hyperbole, let's face it. Um, <laughs> I think it matters to turn it around. I think it matters who gets elected. It matters if Hillary gets elected for the Democrats. And I think it probably matters even more who gets elected for the Republicans. It matters to the United States. It matters to Europe. It matters to the world. So let's keep that in perspective. And every time we see these people, you know, standing in a line, uh, you know, talking to the cameras in Las Vegas or wherever they were, most recently it was Las Vegas, wasn't it? Mm. I think there's, uh, there's about a dozen of these uh, lineups for the Republicans. Only four as it happens for the Democrats, which is interesting. Um, it's like watching a reality TV show. And this yeah. ties in exactly with what we're, we're, we're hearing here. There's no accountability. I mean, you can, you can call them out, but they just come back to the show again and it keeps on rolling on. And so there is something about the so-called culture of narcissism uh, that's going on with Trump, I think, a little bit. Although I think that the more important thing is he's, he's, um, he's feeding fear. You know, he's, he's a populist fearmonger uh, and a xenophobe. And I think he needs to be called out for that. Um, I think Hillary Clinton only last week said, oh, I no longer find him funny. I don't think she should have been giggling when his name was introduced ever. Mm. He has to be taken very seriously. And this election should be taken much more seriously, perhaps, than it is. Because he is actually the exemplar of something that we thought we had consigned to Mm. history. We have looked back in history and asked, how the hell did this dictator get to the point where they could endanger or, in fact, end world peace? And we, we have sort of thought, It couldn't happen again and it really shouldn't have happened then. There must have been some missing level of sophistication or analysis or coverage or courage. And what we're seeing is exactly the same thing happening. And in Europe, because Europe is basically Democrat, we're all hoping for implosion. If it doesn't happen... There's a serious problem for more than America. Well, I mean, Trump is, Trump is essentially the definition of fascist. I think that's largely what we've been saying here, authoritarian, racist, you know, egomaniacal, you know, with a kind of a leadership cult uh, that he's built, that he's hoping to build around himself. So I, I think that there's, there's no question that he is somewhat different from what we've seen before but in, it, these, in these elections. On the other hand, I think Maureen Dowd is wrong there about the difference between the character in the campaign and the character as president mm-hmm. because the system – is rigged to ensure that a Barack Obama can't really, you know, run the country as a leftish community organizer, and that a that a uh, that a W. Bush goes to war on behalf of the people who sponsor him, you know, on behalf or, of the military-industrial complex. Or is complex. it the process? Like, I remember during um, the Democratic nomination process when it was Hillary versus Clinton. and Or, uh, or, or sorry, versus Barack <laughs> Obama. <laughs> that was an interesting writing <laughs> slip there. Um, and she was um, joking about Obama's great rhetoric, you know. And she was saying, look, at the end of the day, it's only a speech. What do people think is going to happen when he makes a great speech that the heavens will open and <laughs> angels will come down and save everything. But his ability to make a good speech won him the election. 
Sure. And he did and then fold. He got, and then he got in. And at, the first thing he did was he rounded up a few people in Wall Street and said, aren't you? You're very lucky that I got elected. I'm yeah. the one who stands between you and the pitchforks. And he proceeded to drop bombs on seven different countries. And he, he ran the country in much the same way that had been run before he got so, in. So, Karen, if it's show business that an election turns into, are you always going to elect the wrong person? If you look at the stats for Trump, and I think that there's some hope here um, if you if you are not, uh, I suppose, a supporter of Trump, um, no one with a college education who is a Republican will vote for him, okay? Now, ha- more than half the electorate don't have college um, degrees or college education, but you will see even then, as you get closer, and I think Liam and uh, had already alluded to this, that as you get closer to the real D-Day, the decision, that they will start to look at what Trump is actually saying in terms of policy. And Trump so far has entered into debates by saying, I like that guy, I don't like that guy. That person has been nice to me, that person Mm -hmm. hasn't been nice to me, and he's been throwing insults. He has never come up with any real policy proposals. Even his proposal to deport 11 million illegals in the US is recognised by half of his supporters, 55% of his supporters, as being impossible to actually carry out. So if his own supporters realise that his policies are actually unworkable, I think when it comes down to it that minds will be focused. I liken him actually to Ross Perot of 1992 because Ross Perot was competing against Clinton and Bush and he was way ahead in that three-way race at one point. He got 18.9% of the vote at one point and people were seriously worried about him. And he's a little bit like Bush, or sorry, he's a little bit like Trump because he had a populist rhetoric, but he's different as well. I mean, his core message is about balancing the budget. Trump says, I'm a businessman, I can take care of business, I can do deals mm. with, with the Russians, I'll, I'll block the Chinese out of here. I'll save American jobs. Um, But he was liberal on abortion, unlike Trump. Um, And he was a populist who wanted direct Is Trump conservative on abortion too? He he waxes and wanes. Um, And that's the problem. And even if you look at Mitt Romney, who was a candidate, he actually fell down on that because um, Mitt Romney had said before, well, when he was running for governor, he said, um, I'm pro-choice because my mother um, actually ran for office and got into office and she's always been pro-choice. But then once he got the Republican nomination in the presidential race, he suddenly became anti-choice. And this was brought out in the media to show that he had done a complete U-turn. And you'll see that once a candidate actually secures the Democratic or the Republican nomination, you'll see some U-turns that will then come to light in the actual general election race for the presidency. Now, just one quick thing. I have this very superficial idea that, well, the Democrats, you know, they're kind of lefty as far as you can be in America. So they're the good people that uh, Poor people in America should be voting for. And the Republicans are really all the big business guys. So why on earth? And they stop Medicaid and, you know, inherently good things. So why would poor people vote for Republicans? The Liam, that, do you want to, the want answer to take that? The answer to that is part of that historical lesson I was yeah. boring your listeners with a few minutes ago, which is the Republicans learn, but this is biting them now. They're holding the tail of this thing. And this thing is culture, okay? Um, values have become very important to Republicans in the discussion of how we vote. And one of the ways that they have managed to make the so-called good people, the work, white working class Americans, vote against their economic interests yeah. is by pushing cultural values to the forefront and making those the issues to vote on. 
So it's gay marriage, it's gun rights, and so on and so forth. So if you can get people voting on cultural values or values of this coded language, you can steer them away from thinking about their economic interests. It has remained the case, though, that income is actually one of the best predictors of how you're going to vote in America. The richer do vote, are more likely to vote Republican, right. poorer are more likely to vote Democrat. There is, however, this this other thing, the Reagan Democrat, the working class, uh, the working class Republican voter. And the thing about those people is that I think this notion that they're voting against their economic interest by voting for Republicans is a kind of an outdated version of what Democrats stand for. The fact is that you don't the Democrats haven't really been advancing the economic interest of the working class any more than Republicans have done. So why wouldn't you embrace the cultural issues or why wouldn't you embrace your anger at elites that, that's kind of fueled by the rhetoric of a Trump or a, or a Cruz indeed? I have to take a quick break. But when I come back, we'll be back with more. And Karen, who wants to get in on that? Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. Welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about the US presidential election this morning, and in particular, the Republican Party candidates. With me in studio, Terry Prone, Chairman of the Communications Clinic, Liam Kennedy, Director of the Clinton Institute at UCD, Harry Brown, Lecturer in Journalism at DIT, and Karen Devine, who's a Lecturer in International Relations at DCU. Karen, just before the break there, we were talking about how class comes into play and why on earth would poor people vote for Republicans. And Liam Kennedy was suggesting that it's because people are convinced to vote based on values and culture rather than on their economic interests. I completely agree with what he's saying about the fact that values really matter and that's why you have to be evangelist uh, Christian, for example. Um, But what I wanted to say was that there's a danger for the Democrats to be associated with this idea of we help the poor because that's how Reagan got in in the 80s. You had this notion of uh, Reagan Democrats and they left basically the the Democratic vote and went Republican and went with Reagan because they saw him serving their interests better. So they were wealthy enough white individuals um, who had traditionally voted Democrat. So it was only when Bill Clinton started to claw some of those back that the party was successful electorally. So there is a danger that you can over-identify in that way. And really, what, 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 whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, what you want is this discourse, and Obama was brilliant at it in 2012, was we want to help the middle classes. And the middle class is such a vague concept that everybody sees themselves as middle class. So if you can keep saying, I'm going to serve the middle classes, and at the same time say, I'm not elitist, there you have your political magic in terms of your campaign message. Terry Prone. When you talk about xenophobia, one of the great dangers that um, the the liberal Europe where has posed to it is the fact that the more Europe criticises Trump, the more it reinforces the people who want to vote for him. Somebody was saying to me today that um, the British Open, the golf championship, uh, Turnbury um, has been taken out of the seven prestigious old golf courses because he now owns Turnbury. And that is the sort of thing that will resonate with golfers across America. I suspect that people who are golfers, who are older, who are already interested in Trump, will look on that as almost interference and who the hell gives the Brits the right to attack capitalism 
through Donald Trump and Donald Trump as a presidential candidate. And Terry, another thing I wanted to ask you about is the role of the wives and how influential they can be. Because particularly in America, I think you feel you're not just voting for the candidate. You know, there is a team going in there. Um, Jeb Bush's wife in particular is quite interesting. She's a Um, fascinating, charismatic woman and uh, has undoubtedly helped him appeal enormously to the Hispanics. Yeah. Yeah. And he apparently has really, really good Spanish. Um, And then domestically, how much of a factor do you think that could become here? Now, I know you know Fanula Kenny, so you might want to say anything Mm -hmm. about her too personally, but there is very much, I think, a sense, it may not be talked about too much, that she's a pretty powerful and influential person. And maybe people used to think that about Joan Fitzgerald as well, maybe, and Garrett. Um, You know, how important can the wife be? as an electoral asset. Enormously important. Uh, not in the sense of being a one-woman kitchen cabinet. Uh, Joan Fitzgerald was overtly and articulately powerful um, whenever she got the chance she indicated that she was. Um, <laughs> Fanula Kenny is quite different. Fanula Kenny does not talk in public and Fanula Kenny would laugh at the kind of attribution of enormous power to her down in Castle Bar because she stays out of all of that jazz. I do think that the partner is crucially important, first of all, because anybody who wants to go into politics and to reach high office in politics has to be slightly nuts and also greatly obsessive. And it means that they do not tend to be great family people. And so they need a structure, an infrastructure behind them that is supportive, that is just... They're ballast against everything else. Uh, so to that extent, obviously in America, if you look at today's or yesterday's papers, there were shots of uh, Trump with his wife because she's glamorous. Um, but it's not overt Mm. this time around. And then just lastly on this particular topic, as you know, there's been so much talk about quotas and the need to get women into electoral politics. Do you think the soft power of being a political wife counts as temporal power? No, I do not. Oh. Nor do I believe that Hillary Clinton's experience and put your own perverted commas around that one (laughs) um, as First Lady should count at all. It is only your operational experience on the ground in real politics that matters. And the very notion of pillow power, of soft power, gives me the screaming heebie-jeebies. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Liam, um, as you are director of the Clinton Institute, on that and just flicking to Hillary for a minute, mm. um, is Bill a help or a hindrance to her in this? <laughs> Speaking of first partners, what, what language are we using for Bill? Um... That's a very good point. That's an interesting one. Maybe people should phone in and tell us. Yes. Um, I think that certainly he's going to be, I think, a help this time around. I think he was a little bit of a hindrance. If you go back to 2008, Mm. there were a few gaffes, and uh, I think they've kept him um, under control, shall we say. But um, he's a huge aide. Um, He's a policy wonk. He's he's, he's a fascinating individual in that regard, and he will passionately be talking about this with uh, with his partner. But I think they've put some firewalls between his people and her people just to be absolutely sure um, that there's no misunderstanding um, or attempts to 
uh, claim that he is in any way shaping her perspectives and so on and so forth. So I think he's going to be very important, but I don't think you're going to see an awful lot of him over the next few months. Presumably, though, if she wins, and I think it's the presumption of this conversation that she's unbeatable. I think anyway. the presumption uh, almost everywhere seems to be that unless something very mysterious happens. Yeah. It would have to be pretty mysterious because we don't think there's any more skeletons there. So, uh, But that doesn't mean that she will definitely win. I think she'll get the nomination. That's the presumption and it's presumptive and I think it's true. I think that will be a coronation when, in, in July. But my own view is very, is very simple. I think that um, uh, Trump will disappear. I think possibly Cruz will make the run or Rubio. And I believe that Democrats are much more scared of Rubio because if Rubio gets into place and gets support, he is a very, very strong candidate. First of all, he's a very intelligent politician. Uh, He speaks very well. Um, He doesn't diss the establishment in the same way that Cruz does, but at the same time, he can play the Hispanic card better than Cruz can. Mm -hmm. Um, Hispanics identify with him. They don't identify with Cruz. That is so important. Um, it's been calculated that the Republicans need to get 40% of the Hispanic vote in order to win the election, the presidential election. Now, you go back to 2012, Romney got only 27%. That's a lot to make up. I don't think Cruz can make it up, but I think Rubio can. And refresh my memory on the background. Rubio is Cuban by descent. They're both Cuban by descent. They're both Cuban. Well, yeah. I mean, so Cruz, why... Cruz is half Cuban by descent. He's His half mother Cuban. is Irish-Italian. So why yeah. does Cruz not get that identification with the Hispanic vote mm. in the way that he, Rubio he does? He doesn't embrace it. Well, yeah. Cruz basically is not Latino in terms of his upbringing. So yeah. when you look at Marco Rubio, he grew up up in Miami um, and he went to like Florida University and then law school Miami and when you look at Ted Cruz he he grew up in Houston um, and in fact Ted Cruz was born in Canada, Canada. Yeah. and this is going to be interesting yeah. uh, he's Canadian mm, yeah. um, his he only renounced his Canadian citizenship in May 2014 but I thought yeah, right. there was this thing you couldn't run a for president citizen. yeah, yeah. 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 There's, there's a certain amount this was of, why uh, uh, what's his name well, McCain was born uh, the on the Terminator. Terminator. Arnie couldn't run. So yeah. why can Cruz run and Arnie? Well, I mean, run? there's no reason. Th- I mean, you can run. It's just whether you can be sworn in as president. Oh, is right. the question. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that uh, um, McCain was was born on a naval base abroad. So uh, it, the the widespread interpretation at the moment oh. seems to be born to an American citizen, had natural rights as an American citizen at birth. And he would get away with that. Now, I think, I mean, given that Trump made his name politically over the last few years by going on about whether uh, Obama was born outside of the United States and Obama was born to an American <laughs> citizen, wherever it was that he was born, his mother was definitely an American citizen. It's kind of funny that now yeah. the, 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 the great right wing hope alongside Trump is this cruise. So, Karen, if Rubio might be the guide then... Is he okay? Have we anything to fear from a president, Rubio? Rubio's interesting, and again, I agree with uh, Liam in terms of how he's different from Cruz, because Cruz is basically a hardcore Tea Partier, a hardcore evangelist. He is against legalizing illegal immigrants that are currently there. That is a huge thing to say as somebody um, who's going for a Republican nomination compared when you have somebody like Rubio there who's saying, yes, we should give them legal status. Yes, we'll secure the border. And he negotiated this. It was, um, I think, a party of eight, six or eight um, Democrats and Republicans who negotiated this in 2013. And he said, yeah, we'll do the same things at the same time. We'll secure the border and we'll allow people to be legalized. Um, so that's good. It's very very good. Yeah, but yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, go on, Karen. We'll let them in then. Yeah. I think Rubio appeal is more democratic than any of the Republicans that are there. He's the probably the most centrist. I have to take a quick break and then Liam and Harry can jump back in. Talking Point on News Talk 106 to 108. And welcome back to Talking Point. We're talking about the US Republican Party nomination process. In studio with me is Terry Prone, Chairman of the Communications Clinic, Liam Kennedy, Director of the Clinton Institute at GCD, Harry Brown, a lecturer in journalism at DIT, and Karen Devine, a lecturer in international relations in DCU. Liam Kennedy, you wanted to jump in there on that point. We were talking I, about Marco Rubio before the break. Yes, and, and, and I'm glad we're not talking about Donald Trump. I, I want to agree <laughs> with, with Karen, absolutely. I, and and I, think that, I think that Rubio is the candidate who scares the Democrats. I think he's a candidate who's electable. At the end of the day, the Republicans, I've said before, they're, they're a bit of a mess. They're very stretched. But in order to win, somebody has to move to the center. Now, Rubio can do that. I don't think Castro can. Uh, sorry, I don't think that uh, Cruz. Cruz can. Yeah. But that's a, an interesting slip because the point I wanted to make in follow-up was to tack back to Clinton. Can she do anything to counter this? The smart money is in her making her VP, Julio Castro. Now, she may not do it, but if she does, it's a and smart move. Well, he was the mayor of San Antonio. He's a Democrat from Texas. Uh, he's currently running um, the Housing and Urban Development Unit under uh, Obama. So you've got a smart, young Hispanic whom Hispanics identify with. That could help nullify what's happening and on the right. And you know the way Obama um, renewed diplomatic relations with Cuba. Mm. Does that help Hillary then? Because they can say, we did this. Or are those American Cubans, the Rubio kind, are so they the really Cuban, annoyed Cuban with Americans that? Cuban Americans are much more right-wing than Latinos as a whole in right. the population. I mean, okay. Largely because so many of them uh, come from the exile community as Rubio's family so, may or may not So do. did the exiles <laughs> want diplomatic relations or were A lot they of them against? were actually hostile to, right. the, to the restoration of diplomatic relations with Cuba and have remained so. Um, I think that it's I, I think it's a little dangerous to suggest that Rubio is practically a liberal, though I, I okay. you know, or that he could very easily pass as a liberal. It was quite interesting. One of the highlights of the debate the other night, he was going after Cruz from the right on civil liberties. Cruz has a slight civil libertarian streak. Uh, Rubio doesn't. Rubio was basically saying, what? You want to protect American citizens who may be involved with ISIS? If they're involved in ISIS, they're an enemy combatant and we take care of them and ask questions later. So, and he got, of course, big applause line from the audience on that. So he was actually going after Cruz from the right. Terry, uh, just on the wider question of giving easy answers to complex questions, it is a populist thing to do, and I'm not entirely sure what the difference between a right-wing populist and a left-wing populist is. But we have seen that um, uh, happening here in Ireland in domestic uh, domestic politics. Do you see that support for the populist vote tapping out in our general election when it comes? I think that to use the word populist in this context is to be needlessly insulting because the fact is that all great politicians, most notably Churchill, had the capacity to take the vast and the complex and to cast it in short words that meant something to people, that motivated them, that changed their lives. The notion of the soundbite as being emblematic of a kind of a loss of subtlety is a great mistake. Um, I came, I saw, I conquered is a great bloody soundbite. Um, we always need people who can summarise in a way that other people say to other people because the process of getting elected is partly to make people feel comfortable not just about voting for you but about confessing to having voted for you and the capacity to 
quote you, is key to that. So what's the difference between populism, which we'll use as a pejorative term, and that gift to simplify and communicate something? I think that populism tends to be telling people what they want you to say, but that is not necessarily wholly truthful or even practicable. To suggest that you could, in America, bar people because of their religion at entry point is simply not practicable and it runs counter to much more than the left view of America. Every kind of libertarian, um, once they think that through, will say, do you know something? No. Um, Karen Devon, I'll give you the last word. Um, Does the process work out of this circus? Does the best candidate get nominated? I think that the Republican process has exposed just how difficult it is to be able to pick the best candidate because of the presence of Trump. Um, I agree with everyone else has said about Trump. His presence is a complete disaster for the Republicans because they can't afford for him to get the ticket. They're going to have to ask him to excuse himself completely, but he might run as an independent, in which case one in five Republicans have said that they will vote for him as an independent. Well, he did say this week that he definitely wouldn't do that. Oh, did he? Okay. Okay. This week. Yeah. Not so, sure if I believed him though, but he was. <laughs> yeah, but he did say You it. believed him on one thing, but not on another yeah, thing. Yeah. <laughs> you also have to factor in the, the, the money that's involved, the super PACs, uh, political action committees, and really money talks as well. So we'll see who gets the best nomination. Yeah, I think one of you said um, in, in your notes it cost a billion or something to get in, which is appalling. Well, Bush's super PAC has spent 50 million and he's got nowhere. Oh my God. Well, look, thank you to you all for coming in to enlighten us on that. Thanks to Aoife Breen who produced. We have a great show for next Saturday, St. Stephen's Day on the vitally important subject of makeup and I say that without irony so tune in for that and in the meantime I hope you have a Christmas, if not happy, then at least without incident. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this Newstalk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programmes or for more information go to newstalk.ie